Let's now pray before we open up God's Word here in Genesis 17. Let's pray together. Father, do pray this morning that you would take my weak lips and weak heart and weak mind. You would take the very strong word that is laid out before us, that you would use the word through me to teach and to instruct, to shape and form that you might receive glory in our midst. And pray that your spirit would be active, that you would make us ready receptacles for the truth of your word, and that we would rejoice in the hearing of it read and preached. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Genesis chapter 17, we're going to read the whole chapter this morning. This is the holy and errant word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. 
But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, and bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. We have been looking at the faith of Abraham over these weeks, as we said here in Genesis. And since we're taking large swaths of the chapters here in Genesis, we can't get into every detail, and we can't do that this morning. There's an awful lot that is going on in Genesis 17. But what I want to do this morning is look at four things that come from the text. These four things, first the silence, then the summons, the sign, and then the solidarity. So first the silence, the summons, the sign, and the solidarity. It's only one verse for us to go from chapter 16 to chapter 17. But for Abram and for Sarai, this would have felt like a lifetime. They have been waiting upon the promises of God. There are 13 years between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, 13 years of waiting, 13 years of silence. And it's been 24 years since God first made the promise to Abram. Between now, when Abram is waiting to see those promises realized, that's a lot of silence. We didn't look at chapter 16, but in chapter 16, after all of these years of waiting in silence, Abram and Sarai decide to take matters into their own hands, and they are going to be creative. And so Sarai takes her maidservant, Hagar, and she gives, him, gives her to Abram. And Abram takes Hagar and goes into the tent and goes into her, and she conceives, and she bears a son. The problem is God's promises are not fulfilled by our manipulation. That is the error of magic and of witchcraft and of sorcery. Our God is not a being to be shaped by us. We are each a being to be shaped by Him. And so we are told that these 13 years of silence follows upon what happens in chapter 16. They're attempting to manipulate God. We don't know, was it 13 years of silence as a way of disciplining Abram and Sarai? We don't know. I think that is probably reading into the text. But there are 13 years of silence. But God has not forsaken Abram. And He's not forsaken Sarai. God never forsakes His people. And so, we see that God appears to him once again. Before we do so, I want to think about that idea of silence and 
silence in the midst of a, a faith-filled life. It is silence that we often feel that God has abandoned us. We go through a period of time and not experiencing much and feel like, well, maybe God has abandoned me, especially when we know that we have been in sin. This kind of silence is not foreign to God's people. Israel will be in the land of Egypt for 400 years. There will be 400 years of silence between Malachi and John the Baptist. There's been no return of Christ since his ascension to the right hand of the Father for 2,000 years. And when there's silence like that, it begins to work upon the mind. And our minds become dominated with when will he work. And when will he work then becomes will he ever work. But then will he ever work becomes a decided discouragement. He won't work. And that's the great temptation when we're in the midst of waiting and silence. Because he's always working. He's always working. Abram had to live in the in-between. There's an in-between between God making the promises to him and him seeing all of these promises fulfilled. And most, if not all of the Christian life, is lived in the in-between. We live in between the promises and seeing them exercised in our midst in full glory and their full maturation. There are very few mountaintop experiences in a faith-filled life. Most of the faith-filled life is lived in the in-between. It's lived in between in the, in the valleys and in between as we traverse the hills and in between as we go into the chasms of the depths of the earth. That's where it's lived. Even the great men and women of the faith saw very few mountaintop experiences. They were limited in number. It's in what we often call the mundane that the faith-filled life is lived. It's lived when I clean another diaper or show up for yet another work Zoom meeting or encourage another struggling friend or gather for weekly worship or extend grace to a brother or sister in Christ who thinks differently than me or forgive my spouse or mow that grass again this week that I know I just mowed last week. It's in the mundane. It's in the, the blah, to use a theological term, moments of life. I just feel like blah. But it's there that our faith most brilliantly needs to shine. Because it's there that most of our faith is lived. In the blah of life. After what was 13 years of silence from Abram's perspective, God appears to him again. He announces that he is El Shaddai, I am God Almighty, he says. And God Almighty has a summons for Abram, our second point, the summons. And the summons is this, he says, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Abram is to understand and we are to understand that though most of life is this mundane, is this routine, is the blah, that it's purposeful. 
that we are to walk after his glory and labor for his glory. We're not a spectator of what God is doing in redemptive history. We are a participant in it. And so we're to walk blamelessly before him. Walk blamelessly before me, Abram. That that phrase, walk before, is used to speak of servants before kings. There's a call upon Abraham's life, even as there is a promise to Abram of life. How you live matters to me, Abram. It's not enough that you just think rightly about me, that you have an orthodoxy. You also must be a person of orthopraxy, that is, you must live rightly before me. Both matter. Jerry Packer, as many of you know, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, passed away this weekend. J.I. Packer was such a man that sought to live an orthodox and orthoprax life where he sought to give glory to God with all of his mind and with all of his life. I had the honor of meeting him once in Dallas when I was there and went to listen to him preach and talk to him after the service. He was a man that sought to live all of life to the glory of God. I was uh, listening to an interview he gave this week in which he was describing his conversion at the age of 18. And he said, you know, before he was 18, he believed that he was a Christian because he thought an awful lot about God. He thought about God, as he says, as simply furniture. He was simply scenery, background to his life, there as a frame of reference, J.I. Packer said that he thought he was a Christian because he thought a lot about God. But as he says, I was very far from God because I had no concept of a personal relationship with Jesus the Son and with his Father. He said, I had not submitted myself to Christ. And he tells the story that when he was 18, he was in a worship service, and at the very end of the service, they were singing a hymn that we often take task for not being the best hymn as far as orthodox and helpful, just as I am. And in the midst of that, he's singing that hymn, and he says he was converted. And he says, I submitted my life to the Lordship of Christ. I was now going to live all of my life to the glory of God. Walk blamelessly before him, he understood. As Packer said once, I would like to be remembered as a voice calling Christian people to holiness and challenging lapses in Christian moral standards. He understood the importance of walking blamelessly before God. And yet, this is also the same man who said this, and I resonate with this. He said, I am a sinner who is gifted or cursed with the ability to talk better than he lives. And I wouldn't want folks to forget that. He sought to walk blamelessly, but he was always leaning into and leaning upon and finding safety and security under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is exemplified in this covenant. The silence, the summons, third, the sign. 
has called Abram to walk blamelessly before him. And, and yet he wants to remind Abram and he wants to remind us. You'll notice the language. That it's all about what God is doing that affects and brings this covenant to fruition. He speaks of himself, I, 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 over and over in this passage. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. I will establish my covenant between you, me, and you, and your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring the land. And we could go on and on. That's just the first part of this passage. The whole chapter is filled with God saying, I will do. I am doing. I did this. I promised this. And then he takes it to a whole nother level when he says three different times, he says, this is an eternal covenant I have made with you. It's everlasting. It's dependent upon me, God is saying. All these promises of God, and now God gives Abram a sign of these covenantal promises. And it's an odd sign. Circumcision. Always gets a little weird in Sunday school class when you got to talk about circumcision. I feel like at my house we have described and defined circumcision a thousand times more than any other term we've read in the Bible, and it keeps coming up. When are we going to get this? So I don't have to talk about it. Circumcision. There's a reason, though, that it is this sign. Before we go there, though, notice the strange language in verse 10. God says, this is my covenant with you, circumcision. This is my covenant, circumcision. Not that way. Circumcision isn't the covenant. The covenant isn't circumcision. In verse 11, he says, this is the sign of my covenant, circumcision. So, Circumcision isn't the covenant, but God says, this is my covenant, circumcision. What's going on here? That's what we would call metonymy in English. It is one thing standing for the greater thing. You do this all the time without thinking about it. If I was to say to you this morning, the White House has said this, and whatever it was. You don't have in your mind, uh, there's this white building on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that it just opened its mouth and words started to come out of that building. You don't think that. You know that when we say the White House says something, that the White House stands for the presidential administration. You know that. You know the one thing stands for the other. And you know that there is such a close relationship between the thing and the thing that it signifies that one can be used in place of the other. And this is what we call sacramental language. There is such a close relationship between the sign, circumcision, and the thing signified, the covenant, that one can be substituted for the other. Jesus does the same thing when he says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. The cup is the covenant? No. But there's such a close relationship between the cup and Jesus' blood, which is shed in the new covenant, that one can be substituted for the other. And so... That is what God is doing here. This is my covenant circumcision. God has given his promises, and now he gives a sign of those promises. Augustine called the sacraments the visible word. 
That is, God has promised things to us by his word. But now he gives us a sign. He gives us something tangible, something that we can touch and that we can see and that we can smell and depending on the sacrament that we can taste. So that when we hear the promises of God with our ears, we then are taking that sign, that sacrament, and we can say, aha, God has promised these things, and as real as these promises, as real as this bread is, or as real as this water is, or as real as this cup is, so as real as the promise of God. It's signified to me. This is true. He does it to, to bolster up our faith. Because he knows we're weak. We want something we can see, and something we can touch, and something we can smell, and most of us, something we can eat. So he gives it. Now what, how was circumcision a visible picture of the word? How was it a sign of God's promises in the covenant? We could spend a long time on this. There are all kinds of things that are signified in it. But I want to point out two this afternoon. And the two are this. The first is the need, as the Puritans used to say, for men to be pruned. It is. There's a cutting off. There's a cutting off of flesh. Man needs to be pruned. Why does man need to be pruned? It's a sign that you and I are born into this world as children of Adam. We have a fallen nature. Our flesh is corrupted. I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. Every single one of us is born into this world a sinner. When Adam fell, we fell. And so every single person, as the catechism says, who is conceived and born into this world by ordinary generation, and let me give you news, that's every one of us, except the Lord Jesus Christ, who was not conceived by ordinary generation, are born into this world as sinners. We're fallen. We're corrupted. And so we need to be cut off from that first Adam. We need to be cut off from our flesh. And it's a sign of that. You'll notice that it's bloody because there is the need for cleansing from the sin. And so it's bloody, recognizing the need for atonement. But the second reason that it's a sign is of equal importance. And that is, it's a sign, going back to Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed that is born of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. There would be one who would be born of woman that would come into the world, this king that is prophesied here in Genesis 17, that she would give birth to kings of kings. That there would be one that would come in as the Messiah of the world and he would crush the head of the serpent. And so every single time that a good Jew was intimate with his wife, and she was intimate with him. They had this reminder that, look, the Lord has promised that through this very means that there will be one that is born to this world that will redeem God's people and save them. And it's a continual reminder throughout the generations. This was administered as one entered into the covenant people of God. As 
So as the text says, it could be that they were born into the house of God, into the Abram's house, and so they were circumcised on the eighth day, or all those that he had bought that were his slaves, that were his household servants, who were from different lands and different places, were brought into his house, and they were also circumcised because they are part of the covenant family that Abram is the head of could go without saying that circumcision can't be undone. And so this individual would be forever marked in their flesh that they have belonged to the covenant people of God and to the very covenant family of God. Now we are a Presbyterian church. And at the close of the service, we're going to do three covenantal baptisms where we baptize three children who have been born in our midst here because we understand that as circumcision was the ordinance or was the sacrament of being admitted into the covenant family of God, so baptism is its new covenant counterpart. That as circumcision was applied to the children when they became part of the covenant community, so baptism is to be applied to these children as they become part of the covenant community. And like circumcision was a sign of cleansing, so baptism is a sign of cleansing. The outward washing of the water, but it's no longer bloody. Because... The sacrifice has already been made. Jesus has already shed his blood upon the cross. So now that cleansing is with water and it's unbloody. Just like when we come to the Lord's table and it has a fulfillment of Passover in that sacrament, it is unbloody because Jesus has already died upon the cross and his blood has already been shed. So we believe... But as one enters into the covenant community, they are to receive baptism, whether that is as a child born into our midst or whether that is someone that is coming to saving faith in our midst and then being entered into our membership and fellowship. Children of covenant members are are set apart. We all recognize that. They're unique. They're different. I can say we all recognize that because we all teach our children to pray. We all teach our children to sing in corporate worship to God. They're unique. They're they're different. They're different than all the children that are out there in the world. Why? Because they're growing up in the midst of this. They're sitting underneath the Word of God read and the Word of God preached. They're sitting among the people of God as they pray and hear those prayers. They see the sacraments and that visible Word that is given to them. They observe the Lord's table and their parents partaking of it. They are also prayed for and they are prayed with. They have privileges beyond privileges that the child in the world does not have. They're born into a privileged state. Does that mean that they are saved? No. Salvation is not caused by baptism any more than circumcision was. There were Ishmaels and there are Esau's among the Isaacs and Jacob's. Some have received 
Some receive the sign and they reject the covenant. As one theologian said, nowhere in the Bible will you find a covenant sign that is a sacrament which affects a relationship. A covenant sign always reflects a relationship. And so the covenant sign only works as God attends to it by His Spirit and He gives grace and works faith in an individual. And so as they have faith, then all that is signified is sealed unto them at that baptism, just like it was for those eight-day-year-old babies that were circumcised. It could be when they were eight years old or they were 88 years old that they came to saving faith and everything that was signified became theirs. As Calvin wonderfully said, the sacraments properly fulfill their office only when the Spirit, that inward teacher, comes to them by whose power alone hearts are penetrated and affections moved and our souls opened for the sacraments to enter in. And then he has this famous line. If the Spirit is lacking, the sacraments can accomplish nothing more in our minds than the splendor of the sun shining upon blind eyes or a voice sounding in deaf ears. Just our children are brought to the waters of baptism, now they're marked with that sign, and that sign will always call out to them. It will testify to them. You've had all these privileges. Unlike the children of the world, believe, believe, believe. It calls out to them for the rest of their lives until they believe. Quickly, parents of covenant children, there is great rest. As you think upon the waters of baptism and you think upon this covenant, God is not just for us, as he says over and over to Abram in this chapter, but he is also for our children. This promise is for you and for your children, he says. It is the same language that Peter will pick up at Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Spirit is being poured out upon God's people and there are thousands of baptism. He echoes this thing and he said, this promise is for you and for your children. It's his word. And there's rest in that. But we often forget that. We become schizophrenic Christians. We argue incessantly and rightly that our own personal salvation is wholly a work of God, but then we act as though the salvation of our children is our work. We are grace-saturated Calvinists in regard to our own souls, and at best Arminians, and at worst work-saturated semi-Pelagians in regards to our children's souls. We act as though our salvation is in God's hands, but our children's salvation is in our hands. Oh, he says, this promise is for you and for your children. This will be a work of my grace. I am the covenant-keeping God. When that child is circumcised at the eighth day, I think in many ways to signify this, a child that is helpless, it can't do anything for itself. And a parent can't force that 
baby's will to do anything. You can't force that baby to sleep if it doesn't want to sleep. You can't stop it from crying if it wants to cry. You can't force its will, and it can't do anything. All you can do is lift it up to the Lord. Say, save my child. They're in need of grace, of God's grace, and that's represented and signified in the sacrament. I say to you children in the room, this, children, 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 it's not enough that you're baptized. It's not enough that you've been baptized. You have to believe. You are not clean because you were washed in baptism waters. You can only be cleansed by the blood of Christ. For that, you have to believe. So have you believed? And for you parents, if your child wanders from the way and heads down the path of being a covenant breaker, you have great grounds as a covenantal parent to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, They've been part of the covenant community. They've heard the word. They've heard your promises. They've seen your promises. And you can plead. They've even received the sign of your promises. Would you make my child your child? Grounds to plead. Those of you that are Christians, when you see the waters of baptism, I should always remind you of your own baptism. It is a great blessing to watch others be baptized because it should impress upon us that I'm the Lord's. And that I have been forgiven in Christ and I have been washed in the blood of Christ and I have been united with Christ in His death and His burial and resurrection and I am forever forgiven. I'm His. I'm in union with Him. Finally, we see in this passage solidarity. Isaac will be the promised heir of Abram's house, yet all of Abram's house is circumcised. Abraham wants Ishmael to be the recipient of these covenant promises, uh, the one through whom they would come. And God says, no, it will be Isaac that I will provide, and you will have a child this time next year, Sarai. But you'll notice that when this covenant is entered into with Abram, and the sign is given to Abram, it is then applied to all of his household. It's applied not only to himself, not only to Ishmael, not only to all those that were born in his house, but all of those that have been brought into his house. So that all of those, no matter where they have come from, no matter what complexion their skin was, no matter what language they used to speak or now speak, no matter what land that they used to call home, they're now part of Abram's family, and so now they're part of the covenant community. And as part of the covenant community, there is solidarity 
They're now all identified by this mark in their flesh. They're one. They're one. When Abram is saved, he is saved in the community. I will say this till I am blue in the face. When you and I are saved, we are saved not only unto God, we are saved unto one another. We're always saved into community. Always. The entire community is now marked that they belong not only to God, but to one another. You think that the sign of circumcision, as with the sign of baptism, is not only a sign of God's promises to me, it's also a reciprocal promise of me to God that I will live blamelessly before Him, that I'm His. It's also a sign that I'm distinct from the world, I'm set apart from the world, I'm not like them, I belong to the covenant community. But it's also a sign from me to you and you to me that we are together. We're one. There's solidarity here. I love URC. I love it for so many reasons. One of the things I love about URC is its diversity. I recognize that some would desire to see more diversity in one realm or another, one part of our community life or another. There's a lot of diversity here. I was with a group of pastors this past week, and I was talking, we were talking about our churches, and it's kind of explaining to them the, the spectrum we have on a number of different things in our congregation, and they were amazed. We have that kind of diversity. We have diversity along political lines. We have diversity along schooling choices. We have diversity upon what roles should look like in society. We have diversity of views regarding social issues and which social issue is more important than another and what should rise to the forefront and what shouldn't. And on and on we could go. Quite diverse. What I love is we will walk through those doors on Sunday morning and we can be a diverse congregation, which I absolutely love about us. And I love it because we can walk through those doors and it makes our unity shine all the more brightly. Because we know that what we have in common is we love God and we're seeking to love one another. And that trumps everything. the most important. These other things are not unimportant, but we know they're not the most important. We love God and we love one another. Now here's the struggle. That now we're living where that diversity is front and center. And what is our greatest strength can easily become a barrier. So we can stand out in the fellowship hall, or we can stand in the halls, or we can stand outside, and we can be face-to-face -face with one another, and I don't 
know, as we're standing there, maybe that you think that liberal politics is the great answer for politics in our country. It may be that you think that conservative politics is the great answer for politics in our country. It may be that you and I differ on some certain social issue, or we differ on how we school our kids, or we differ on whether on baptism, like we just spoke about, or a host of other theological issues, or we differ because you like Hunt's ketchup and I like Heinz ketchup, and I don't understand you. But here's what's happening now, right? It's in your face. It's literally in your face. And so we can begin to make assumptions about one another because it's in our face. And we read it as if it represents where somebody politically stands or what someone believes about freedom in Christ or what someone believes about fear or what someone believes about a social issue or that social issue or disease or love of neighbor or the importance of corporate worship or whatever it may be. But we're one. There's solidarity here. And our world desperately needs our witness of solidarity. And we need desperately one another's witness of solidarity. Paul in Ephesians 4, when he is writing about this very thing, he says, you know what unites you, dear Christian? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You're united by one Lord. It is a sovereign Lord who dispensed his grace upon you and brought you to everlasting eternal life. One Lord. It is one faith that you've been given. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and God his Father and the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And you've been united by one baptism. This is not our sign. Mask or no mask will disappear. One Lord, one faith, one baptism will not disappear. We've been baptized into solidarity. So can I encourage you to give the judgment of charity to one another? As we seek to live blamelessly before the Lord. The world needs that witness and we need each other's witness. I'm going to be praying that for you. Would you pray that for me? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are a covenant-keeping God. You are a God who elects and saves the people unto yourself not a result of our work, so that we have no reason to boast. And yet we are thankful that you've called us to live holy and blameless before you, that our lives have true purpose. And we pray that as we live holy and blameless before you, that we would truly be set apart from this world, that we would recognize that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that we would find that there is great solidarity as we stand shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm, 
keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and overflowing in love for one another. Keep us, we pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen.